Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David, and this is a bonus segment for our season wrap-up podcast for The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. We had so much material from our interview with Marilyn R. Pukila that we thought it would be best to collect up all the extra material and release it all as a bonus episode. First, a couple of quick notes. We've got a new Patreon where you can subscribe to get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Of course, you can still find all of our regular ad-supported podcasts on our Bald Move feed at baldmove.com, or just search for The Lorehounds in your app of choice. Currently, we're covering Season 1 of Andor on Disney+, and starting November 1st, we're covering Season 2 of The White Lotus on HBO. Once Amazon announces a release date, we're going to be doing full coverage of Season 2 of The Wheel of Time. Oh, and I almost forgot our newest project, Silmarillion Stories. Once a month, we're going to take a selected story from the Silmarillion and give it the full Lorehounds treatment. We will publish a schedule of the reading list so you can follow along if you want. We're going to start off in November with the Ainalindale, which is the first chapter and just a few pages long. Now, on to the rest of the interview with Marilyn. Before we leave the realm of divine intervention, Marilyn, I wanted to ask you, and I emailed you about this, about Doran's statement that it's the elves' time to leave Middle-earth and that they're going against the will of the Valar if they help the elves stay. Now, did Tolkien ever comment on this idea that the elves' fading was Eru's will and that the maybe the act of creating the rings and using the rings and, and preserving these elven havens on Middle-earth, was that against the will of the divine entities? Well, this comes back to his main theory of uh, his main theme of fall mortality in the machine. That yes, elves are designed; their souls, their their fear, are designed to last as long as Arda lasts. When Arda is destroyed, they will cease to be in some form. What happens after? Nobody knows. But because they have serial longevity, um. You know, they get to have thousands and thousands and thousands of years to find out. The reason the rings were made in the lore is because those Noldor who stayed in Middle-earth after the end of the First Age, they could have gone back to Valinor. So again, this is, this is a gripe I have. It wasn't something awarded to a special few. Any, any elf who wanted to, even the ones who had never been before, could get a ship and go to Valinor, where their fading would be slower but not stopped altogether. This is their nature, in the same way that it is humans' nature to die and to go somewhere else that the elves know not. Remember, all of this is predicated on the fact that these stories are being told through elvish eyes, except for The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which are told through Hobbit eyes. So, here here's some Noldor who hung around after the end of the First Age, after the war was over, after they were actually said, okay, you can come back now. They've fallen in love with Middle-earth. I think they've also fallen in love with having realms of their own. Certainly that's Galadriel's motivation, and, and you know, multiple versions of her, this seems to be the one constant. 
is she wants to rule realms of her own. And this is not a bad thing. The problem is she wants to have her cake and eat it, as do all the elves. They want to remain in Middle-earth, where they are top of the totem pole, as opposed to going back. They don't even get to go to Valinor. They, get, they have to live on a single island, Tolerse, and they, can, you know, they have visiting rights, basically. So there they are. They're in a really sweet position. But they're in a world that fades. They're in a world where things die. Now, they grow back. But this is the thing that really um, distressed, well, Gladriel in particular, we have one excerpt where she talks to, with Celeborn, with, uh, excuse me, with um, Celebrimbor about this very thing, and says, I would have flowers that do not fade and trees that do not die. And Celebrimbor, in his wisdom, says, how else can this be as long as the Elder remain in Middle-earth? So the rings become a machine because they are a created device to try and stop the natural order. The world is intended mm. to fade. And so you could say that King Doran is correct, that it is the elves' destiny to fade. I would take exception to the notion that they're all going to die by springtime if they don't have mithril baths. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's, yeah, he's yeah. just accepting that story, you know, just on, on trust that this is in fact truth. I mean, Elrond believes it, his son believes it, why shouldn't he believe it? So, he's right in the sense of, yeah, everybody's going to end sometime. And the attempt to alter that is, and it is a form of machine, it is an attempt to stay the natural flow and order of things. And so, that was the Elvish Fall. In the second age, in the first age, of course, it was, you know, going after Mordgoth and, and causing wars and destruction and all that sort of thing. Did that answer the question? Well, I, I think so. And the question is now, is Doran Third more in line with the will of the Valar than Gilgalad, High King of the Noldor? It's an interesting question. I think they're both right and they're both wrong. Um, I think Prince Doran expresses it the best when he says, my friend is drowning me and you're drowning and you're telling me to swat his hand away. Mm -hmm. No, that is not a loving act. That is not a kind and charitable act. Doran King, I think, feels his responsibility is to his people and to their survival. And he is a fatalist. I'm not sure how much he believes in free choice, interestingly enough, if you look at it that way. Mm-hmm which is antithetical to what I understand to be Iluatar's idea. But remember, the dwarves were created by Aule. Mm -hmm. They have a very... By Aule's beard. Different, by Aule's beard, yes. They, so they have a very different outlook on life. They have their own stories. They have their own myths. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear him even talk about the Valar as a whole, because they definitely were portrayed as a people apart. And, you know, they have separate halls when they die. And, and, you know, there's so many other ways in which Tolkien portrays them as being different and distinct. The series seems to be bringing them together more. And actually, I kind of like that, that everybody has sort of the same kind of sense, if they know at all, about the Valar and, and, and so on. Um, Gilgalad? I, I have a hard time with Gilgalad. <laughs> I, he, he does seem I, a little bit like an imposter. I, 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 uh, I really, yeah. I really hope. Yeah. He finally said something that I appreciated and said, okay, yes, some wisdom. 
when he said, perilous are these whisperings. I don't want to put that much power into a single object for one person to wear. Thank you. Thank you. You're finally showing sense. Um, but to decide that, you know, I'm packing Gladwell off on the next boat because she's a danger to us and to everybody else. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell her that she's right and that I'm just as worried about it as she is. I mean, that's not the action of a wise and loving ruler, to my mind. All right, but how funny was it when he looked at Galadriel and said, Yeah, well, you you're not shouldn't even supposed even to be here. be here. And that's all we get. I mean, I don't know, maybe we'll see her being dressed down later on, but... Um, the delivery of the look by the actor was priceless. It was, he was yes. just... His face yes. turned I don't think that actor has ever smiled in his life. I mean, do you see any laugh lines? <laughs> I don't. Well, I, again, uh, let, me, let me distinguish the actors from the characters, because the actors, to a person, are doing a magnificent job with the mm -hmm. roles they have been given. So, they really I hope that any time really I cast shade on any character, it's not a reflection on the actor, because that, that's definitely not what I mean, and I don't think it's fair right. either. Yeah. Yeah, we have an actor, we have a script, we have writers, we have showrunners, uh, mm -hmm, and source mm -hmm. material. And so it's fair to call out the different mm -hmm. levels, uh, for sure, for praise. And, and it's for not criticism. fair to, to judge a high king if he has incomplete information. Right. Or inaccurate information. Sure. I think it is just to say, you know, sometimes the best leadership is shared. To get more into the fading of the elves question, um, in a, in a shippy test sort of way, how far off are we in the show's depiction of the fading of the elves? We know that we've got a time compression issue, because we've only got five seasons, not thousands of years. Um, how do both of you feel about how they've uh, sort of squeezed this, this issue down into the, into the season? Well, if you want to measure it on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say it's about a minus 3. <laughs> because elvish souls do not die. Mm. They fade. Their bodies fade, but they get rehoused. So, maybe it was just a slip of the pen, but if they had said, our bodies are going to die... I'd have a lot less okay. trouble with it. Yeah. But to play with the notion of fading in this way, again, is to put too much human on the elves. They don't die. Mm -hmm. And any time, you know, the planting of the seeds, I mean, it's beautiful, it's poetic, it connects Adar to his elvish past and to Orandir, again, this theme of how different are we? But the elves would not be afraid of dying. They wouldn't defy death. Wow, okay, that, that changes my perception of that. Because they are acting yeah. out of fear, right? They're, they're mounting this massive industry and this massive mm -hmm. effort out of fear, as opposed to, well, yeah. something else. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have worked better if Bronwyn had been the one to introduce the, the practice to... But of course, then it wouldn't accomplish what they wanted of showing the similarities, showing the very elvishness of Evrandir still, even though he calls himself Uruk. John, how are you on the, <laughs> are you at a minus three uh, as well? Maybe not that low. <laughs> I, all right. So, okay. So yeah, it's, it's wrong. It's factually wrong, right? Like if you just look at the lore. Um, right. But um, 
And, and the timeline thing, I still think, is just dumb as a storytelling perspective. Um, mostly because they didn't explain it well. Like, is it gonna start in in spring? Is it gonna, you know, a lot of a lot of problems with the way that they did the exposition of that. But totally fair. My headcanon to fix it is they accidentally said soul because Elrond's just such a sloppy speaker, and uh, instead of body, and um, and uh, it's just gonna start in spring. We're not worried about instantaneous. Fading. We're we're worried about the beginning of the the long fade. But the long fade has been going on since the first stage. Don't tell them that. They're already <laughs> confused. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be compassionate. I'm not sure I can be uh, entirely. Um, well, you could be compassionate without approving, right? I, I I want to see. I want to see. Are they going to carry this on in some fashion? I still would love because. Charlie Vickers hinted that Anatar might be reappearing. Maybe at some point we can finally get somebody to say, this is a load of horse cocky. <laughs> or, or, as I said, when Kirdan comes back or, or Celeborn reappears, or whatever, somebody can come along right. and set them straight on this. But we, we still have not, we don't have any indication of the seven or the nine rings. Yeah, um, you noticed. So that's a big open question. Uh, because as I understand it, the yeah, the we John and I talked about this the other day. The way the way that the rings were fashioned. I mean, there's obviously a lot more going on with the rings uh, over a longer period of time and such like that. But that the seven and the nine rings that were given to men and, and dwarves were pro- before the elven, the three elven rings, right? <laughs> because Celebrimbor went off on his own and he was like, "Oh, let me make these ones real quick for us." Mm-hmm. I see the Elven Rings as a response to the baking of the Lesser Rings. Uh, yes. Because wow, okay. I think that Celebrimbor was getting nervous about this guy, Anatar, who's running around basically running his forges. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I have to do something to keep some of these in Elf hands and keep them out of Sauron's hands, Anatar's hands, I guess, at the time. Um, and, and so it was a big change. That was a big change. Now, I don't think that it will necessarily be show breaking because i think the end result is not that different but it was certainly a big change as far as character motivations i mean the whole characterization of Celebrimbor is wildly different from the book Celebrimbor was discerning and Celebrimbor was skeptical of anatar immediately he wouldn't have just been like oh yes uh a gift oh thank you thank you sir it's i i i don't know why they went with that but they did and we're gonna take it that way and we're gonna enjoy it (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on the first two. I, I reserve my Eru given free right to not enjoy it. <laughs> but no, I agree with you that the, the making of the seven and the nine, um, that's, that's about detail, perhaps more than about substance and theme. I mean, maybe he's already, you know, Halbran Sauron has got all those rings in his little pouch, you know, who knows? And but the the question then becomes, both in lore and in show, um, he already knew the basic technique, this whole thing about the seen and unseen worlds and so forth. Um, he wanted to infiltrate it into these communities so that he could extend his power over them. And this was how he did it. He did not expect Celebrimbor to go off on his own and make the three, which I think Celebrimbor was inspired by because of Galadriel, because of her sadness that her kingdom, her flowers keep, 
you know, wilting and fading and whatever. So the motives of preservation, of healing, of lore, of warming hearts, these are all good motives. They're still, at the end of the day, machines. And machines are usually bad news in Tolkien. So I wanna, there's two ways we could break here uh, on, on the rings question. I have an open question about what do rings represent uh, in human history and mythology, as well as this question that we had brought to us in the show, which is not of the flesh, but over flesh. And I think these things are definitely intertwined at some level, and I don't know how we want to, um, which side we want to hit first, or is there is there some sort of alloy that we can coax out of the middle? <laughs> well played, sir. Well we've played. O- we've overplayed that. We- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I can certainly riff on on um, you know history of rings that they were in Anglo-Saxon terms, they were symbols that kings and nobles would give to their followers. So, one of the kennings of the name of king is ring giver, a kenning being a, a, a device that was used in the oral poetry, like Beowulf, for example. So, in that perspective, you have, it indicates a relationship that there, you are receiving something from your lord and in return you give him your service. Now, that could edge over into sort of domination in a way, right? So, Sauron gives rings to his followers and, you know, 3,000 years later they wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, what happened to my body? Magic rings, I mean, they go back, I don't know how far back they go. Um, in terms of Western culture, I'm sure, and in other cultures as well, you know, as far if not further. The notion of putting something into a ring, that's a classic folktale, fairy tale trope. It didn't have to be a ring. Um, a lot of stories you see uh, magic users putting their souls into their little finger and cutting off their little finger and hiding it in a, in a nest in a tree somewhere so that they cannot be killed. So that's another form of immortality through putting yourself into an object. Could have been a ring, might not have been a ring. Um, in the Eddas, you have um, you have dwarves making magic rings. You have a magic ring associated with a horde that eventually a dragon takes over. Um, I get a little fuzzy on this because I'm a big fan of Wagner's ring cycle, and you really have to be careful in separating <laughs> that storyline and the original storyline. Talk about book and and visual media representation, and you know, kind of blurring the edges there. So. It's, it's a very, very old device. And, you know, in The Hobbit, that's just what it was. It was a simple magic ring that made you invisible. Classic fairy tale trope. But Tolkien picked that as the link between The Hobbit and what he originally called The New Hobbit when his publisher said, look, we need a new story. And his first response was, but I said he lived happily ever after the end of his days. So, you know, how can I create a new story for him? He eventually decided it had to be a different character. But in looking for all the things that he had put in The Hobbit, the two things that stood out to him were the magic ring and the necromancer, about which he knew very little at that time compared to how we view it for what we know about Tolkien and Legendary today. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that sort of makes it click, is whereas 
perhaps Celebrimbor had in his mind that the tool that he was making was to increase physical power or power over your surroundings. What Sauron had in mind was to put some of your Fea, and, and if you, if you want a breakdown of this, we did a really good one in the Chapter 3, the Elves preseason coverage. The, the Hroa, well, why did he pick Yiddish words, right? The Hroa <laughs> uh, is, uh, is the, uh, the body, and then the Fea is the spirit, and each being has a different sort of mixture of that. So, like, elves are more, uh, more Fea-based. They're sort of half and half, I think. If you, you can correct me if, if, you, if you like, Marilyn, uh, to begin with, at least. And then the, the Hroa fades over time. The, the Fea is there to, for forever. Um, humans are less Fea, more Hroa. Whereas Sauron is putting, from my understanding, a ton of Hroa in there. He's putting, he's putting his body into this to have control over the bodies of others. So he's getting a power over flesh rather than of the flesh. Well, what I remember, and I'm pulling this out from memory, um, into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate. Which, to my mind, doesn't sound much like body. Yeah. Ah, so that so he is pro- pouring Fey into it. You think he absolutely is. A lot of people think, oh, it's another Horcrux. Not the same thing. Horcrux was intended to help you survive death. Sauron cannot be killed. He's a Maiar. So in putting his, it's more like an amplifier. He poured his power into this ring so that he could dominate all the other wearers of all the other rings. And that's why he was so fierce of Celebrimbor, because Celebrimbor, on the side, made his own rings that were not completely dominated by Sauron's one ring. However... And Celebrimbor, even in the, in the show, talks about how the ring is a... Amplifier. Um, uh, you know, will cycle the power of the, the Hadron of what's in Collider. <laughs> as, as my partner said. Yes, totally. That's exactly my... <laughs> Yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah, I would say that it is about spirit. And I think this is what they were intending to point towards when they talked about a power not of the flesh, but over the flesh. So, to me, that says spirit. Mm. And he also infused a lot of his spirit into the foundations of Barad-dûr. So... In that sense, you could say the ring was a horcrux for Barad-dûr, because once the ring was destroyed, Barad-dûr was destroyed and, and utterly wiped out. Sauron was not entirely killed, because he can't kill Meyer. But he was reduced because he put so much strength into the ring. So that was his fatal flaw, if you will. He never imagined that he would be separated from it. He used it as the Hadron Collider amplifier for all of the domination inside him and as a tool to control you know the other creatures that the other peoples who had had their rings the dwarves of course famously were not susceptible to this uh they were not susceptible to domination because Aldai created them in the time of morgoth and he knew that they would face you know the strong wills and so forth so he just made them very 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 tough that's a good explanation. I didn't realize that there was an explanation for why the dwarves were so resistant to domination. So mm-hmm. thanks for for thanks for that. Sure. Oh, and your comment about Yiddish, 
Yiddish is actually more closer to Dwarvish speech. Mm. Tolkien. Oh, Tolkien. He, he went to Aramaic and and, uh, and Hebrew, right? Right, right. And he often drew parallels between the elves and and the Jews, um, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot there's, of problematic stuff. Yeah, there exactly. With, uh, but exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you 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 instance the prancing pony. They did a wonderful wonderful podcast, um, about issues of Tolkien and other cultures. And one of the speakers, I believe, I heard that. Uh, that was an excellent podcast. I yes, absolutely. Well, if you if you haven't listen because there was there was a jewish person there who talked about this very thing and the you know the good stuff and the bad stuff because it's mm -hmm. it's definitely um it's definitely multifaceted and very very complex right so in terms of um rings flesh or a power over flesh from a shippy standpoint are we in or out here on what the show did I think we're fine thus far. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen enough of it yet. Okay, it seems pretty Sauron-y uh, uh, so far. Yeah, is he is Halbrand Myron or is he Sauron? That's the real question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, his name meant hidden king. Hmm. So I did not for a know long that. time, yeah, I read, I read or heard that somewhere that Halbrand meant hidden king, and so of course they tied it in. Um, Sauron called himself King Excellent. <laughs> King Myron, which meant excellent. So, so while we're on the topic of magical r things, let's talk about the Swedish death metal band and the Dweller, the Nomad, and the Ascetic. There's a lot of conversation around who these people are, what do they represent, um, are they, you know, just regular old people who learned magic are they cultists are they Maiar? are they you know what um while there's a lot of speculation and then we can have a lot of fun with that i'm really curious as to what were the writers thinking when they what mytho historical aspects are these uh um uh characters representing what is the dwell? Who or what is the dweller? Who or what is the nomad? And who or, or what is the ascetic? Well, I think they're doing an excellent job of pulling a number of different facets of different systems together in this. Um, I'll say right up front, they are not witches. What they do and don't do in no way it represents anything from at least from Western European witchcraft, historically or contemporarily. Other than the very basic okay. fundamental thing of quote unquote doing magic. So, and then what does that mean? And we get into a whole conversation right. about that. Right, right. I mean, it's a fascinating choice that they appear to be female feminine. They're dressed in white. Um, you know, you could get into all kinds of symbolic resonances around that, but I'm a very symbolic thinker and it's probably not helpful in this context anyway. What I do see is um, a lot of Egyptian flavor. Which I find interesting because okay. uh, Numenor is also posited as a very strong Mediterranean culture. So you have the staff, and what's on top of the staff is very similar to uh, what's on top of the goddess Isis. It's a sun disc with horns combination. And Isis was the goddess yep. of magic in Egypt. She was a goddess of a bunch of other things too. 
and she had a staff, and any magic users in Egypt generally had staffs. So you see these early resonances, and they all tie in with um, the hermetic tradition of magic, which came from Egypt into Western Europe. And so a lot of those ideas were transferred from one location to another. So you, the, the notion of um, wizards using staffs, very much from, from the Egyptian hermetic tradition. Um, we get alchemy from them. We get astrology. And both of these things, of course, were the antecedents to the sciences of chemistry and astronomy. So culturally, these kinds of systems are, are really quite common throughout Europe. But um, another thing I noticed, which I thought was kind of cute, I think it was on the ascetic, the one who had the sort of little tufty things on the sides of her head, which a lot of people are calling cat's ears. She was the helmeted one? No, the helmeted one was the, was the other one. This is, she wears a, a very tight Right, cap, okay, I see her now. I believe she little... was the, I thought she was the shield carrier. I'm looking at some images now, trying to... Yes, I think she was the shield yeah. character. So, so what is, which one is she? Third base. <laughs> Who <laughs> is on third? Um, is she the ascetic or the... She uh, is I know she's not the, ascetic, the borrower. The ascetic, yeah. But, uh, played by she's the Okay, Coke. good. Yeah. Five points for me. So... These seeming cat's ears on the ascetic are reminiscent of the Egyptian cat goddess Bast. Yeah. But I also wonder if it's a nice little Easter egg for deep lore, because the earliest form we know of Sauron was named Tevildo, and he was a cat. Oh. This, this goes all the way back to the Book of Lost Tales. And we know, the showrunners know their lore, right? So, like... They know their lore. So this could be a really fun little wink, or maybe I'm just symbolizing wildly here and finding patterns. Yes, as you were saying exactly. Making meaning, finding patterns and making meaning. Right. And I know a couple people who will jump up and down if they ever hear this and say, yes, that's exactly what it is, because <laughs> they're very, very fond of Tevildo. And the, the, the helmeted one reminded me more of Athena. Uh -huh. But of course, that's ancient Greece. And I don't know much about Greece's magical systems. I certainly had them, but. Um, I don't think the particular things I'm talking about here with the staffs and so forth. The borrower is fascinating because it seems that they literally borrow other um, materials and do magic with them. So they borrowed the fire and shut up. They borrowed the sort of wind and dust and threw it at the stranger when they were having their battle. The borrower borrowed other human forms and shapeshifted into them. So that's how I understand the, the term, the borrower. I don't know if that's what the showrunners had in mind or not, but... Interesting. So what are they, though? That's my real question, is, is are they Maiar? Somebody threw out an email, I think, to us recently uh, in one of the feedback emails. Why are we being so dismissive of them being Maiar, lesser Maiar, that were corrupted by Morgoth in the first age? Uh, I, I think that's a possibility, I guess. Um, I just, I don't know what they're doing with this magic stuff, because to me, we talked about this in our last conversation, magic is just something that's so inherent in Tolkien, that is not really as much a learned thing, rather than, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, then, mm -hmm. you know, he contradicts himself by saying the blue wizards are starting magic cults, so, but, so what are they, is that, it's my question, do you have any insight on that? 
Well, my theory is that they are cultists. They are human. They are cultists who were trained up by Morgoth and or Sauron in the early days, possibly by a blue wizard who went bad, or both blue wizards who went bad. Um, all I have is my personal headcanon, which, you know, take that for what it's worth. I still think that the stranger is a blue wizard. I think there's another blue wizard already out there. Interesting. In Vroon. That this other blue wizard went astray, decided he liked these magical arts uh, over the unseen world, studied occult magic, trained up a bunch of humans who were interested. Word got back to Valinor and they said, okay, we got to do something about this. And so they sent another blue wizard to say what's going on and hey, you know, don't you remember why you're here and what you're here for and so on and so on. I mean, they they know about Istar. Yes. So somewhere along the line they have encountered an yeah. Istar. To my mind, that can only be a blue wizard. Or possibly two. Well, I hope you're wrong because I pledge to sing I'm a Barbie girl <laughs> on the podcast if it's not Gandalf. <laughs> I heard you do that and I thought, oh well. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. See. I, see, I think it I have to work back up my singing voice, I guess. <laughs> I think it I, I don't know. On the one hand, they're doing with the stranger exactly what they did with Halperin yep. by dropping all of these Peter Jackson Easter eggs to hint that, oh, this is Gandalf. Look, he wears gray. Look, he's this other thing. Uh-huh. I'm hoping that they're doing a double-double blind and saying, okay, we, we sucked you in, or we didn't suck you in, but we're now that you know this happened, we're going to suck you in and say, oh, well, then this must be Gandalf because of all this. And then they're going to say, mm, no, actually, he is a blue. But... Again, hope is never meager. <laughs> hope is never meager, is never meager. And <laughs> cognitive bias is really strong. <laughs> Can I drop in an interesting bit of lore here? Of course. Or not lore, but actually uh, history. Um, in the 1920s, there was a cult, a coven at Oxford for a brief time. An actual witch coven based upon uh, Margaret Murray's writings. Um, Probably not on Gerald Gardner, because I don't think he went public at that point, but he was also using Margaret Murray to recreate what they understood to be indigenous Western practices of magic before Christianity came along. Now, Tolkien had left, for Oxford, left Oxford in the mid-1920s for Leeds, but he came back to Oxford in 1925, and I have to think that the subject came up amongst his peers, because they were very public about it. So, the word was out and about um, on the streets of Oxford. So, there's a sort of a touch of, you know, at least discussion of occult practices and so forth. The other thing is, in the Inklings was a man named Charles Williams, who, in addition to being a Christian, was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was an occult group with a very strong Christian overlay. So, again, this kind of intermingling of these two types of practices. And C.S. Lewis was a great admirer of Charles Williams, and in fact, Charles Williams strongly influenced the third book in his Space Trilogy, um, That Hideous Strength, which was Tolkien's least favorite book of the trilogy. And Tolkien just never cottoned on to Charles Williams. Um, partly because I think he had a very strong influence on Lewis. But, so it is certainly possible to say that Tolkien had some exposure to 
occult notions that were floating around in Oxford at the time. And in a short story that he wrote set a hundred and some years after the reign of King Elisar, called The New Shadow, he also talked about when he when he went back to visit Gondor again, he was dismayed to discover that Gondorian boys were playing orcs in the streets and that there were occult groups starting up around a cult of Sauron. So these themes were present there. Clearly, he thought they were disreputable and, and probably also very evil. So it's not inconceivable that he had notions that somewhere in Middle-earth people were in fact doing occult practices, but that that's not what he meant by magic, by magia. And that for him, as you said earlier, this was not something you could learn, it was something that was innate, developed over, in the elves' case, uh, millennia of knowledge and being in the world and knowing how the world worked and developing their craft. But in the end, as we see with, with the Elven Rings, there is still this notion of influencing uh, other than physical bodies, beings, matter, and so forth. You know, if you think about how we see Lorien in the Fellowship, you know, Galadriel with her ring was clearly protecting Lorien, but she never saw a force field. You know, you, you never heard incantations, you never, you know, it was something of craft. And Sam comments that there's got to be magic going on, but I'm not seeing it. And Frodo responds, you can feel it everywhere. So there's another interesting distinction between the flesh and, and the unseen world. I think that's great. I think that's a, a great distinction. So you're saying that it's it's possible that these people could have this power that is not derived from the Valar, so to speak, um, in this world. Whereas, you know, somebody like Aragorn has healing hands because he's descended from one of the Maiar. Um, but, but these cultists right. could develop something that is sort of, like you said, borrowing from the elements of Arda without being derived from the Valar. Except insofar as you remember that, in fact... Sauron and Morgoth are both Valar. <laughs> ah, true, true. So, so pulling again from the dark side of the force, as we say. <laughs> and coming back to the whole question of there, there is good and there are poor choices. So are Morgoth and Sauron Sith Lords then? Because uh, we got, we got Sa uh, Morgoth to Sauron, <laughs> Sauron to Adar. We, we've got this line of two, and now we have Sauron trying to recruit Galadriel. <laughs> I mean, Padawan over here, what are we looking at here? I don't think I would say that Sauron uh, was uh, apprenticing Adar. I think Adar was just the opposite. He was breaking away. Well, I guess that's why he has room for Galadriel. Yeah, exactly, right? Because he's got to have one. He's got to have only one slot. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So let's take a few minutes and, and sort of wrap up some thoughts. We have so many things left open on our sort of outline notes, but they're just going to have to be 
Um, so, John, closing thoughts, ideas, arguments uh, for the Star Warsization of <laughs> Tolkien. Any other interesting um, takes that you want to have? We can rule the flat Earth as husband and wife. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think that the season was good, not great. I think that it could be great next season. I think that we've hashed out some of our lore issues here. I think that a lo- most of the lore is, look, most of the lore changes have been fine. Like I have been fine with timeline compression generally, uh, with, with a lot of these little changes. I've liked the additional characters, the Harfoots, the, uh, Bronwyn crew, uh, the the people in Numenor, like Aarian and uh, the son of Firestone, those are great additions so far. Um, I guess what I want them to do is tighten things up a little bit. So um, there was a quote in the New York Times article uh, where they interviewed the showrunners, where one of the showrunners said, even the little moments need to feel like they're about the struggle between good and evil. I'm paraphrasing here. And I think that that's wrong. I think that they need to do some soul searching in Tolkien and let Sam mourn the loss of potatoes for a minute you know have have these characters have these moments where we start to love them a little more um where where we see them as as human beings or hobbit beings and empathize with them rather than relating every single thing back to that grand uh epic battle that we're seeing in tolkien because we need to care about these characters and i think that in episode eight we saw that happening we saw those intimate moments um i wish that we saw that the rest of the season and i hope that they take that lesson going forward this is excellent what you just said and this is a really challenging question for me because i don't tend to think in these terms but i think they've done a fabulous job given their limitations they've made some choices that i definitely would not have made but I'm not them and I'm not in the room. I hope that they can relax a little now, breathe a little now. Um, They've got a first season. I think they can say it's a success. Um, I don't believe in comparisons and metrics and did we outdo Hot D or not? I mean, I'm I'm just, you know, that's that's (laughs) not how I am. That's not of interest to me. I want to look at the thing on its own merits. I love that you know that what hot D is, but well, you know, I listen to Aaron, you know, so I've got some of the lingo. That's all he talks about. Aaron, shut up about House of the Dragon. We're done talking about it. We're done. Do you hear me? There's so many storylines that I want to see them develop. It would be nice if they could find their way to getting back closer to the storylines that we were given in the beginning, and maybe that's what they intend to do eventually. Um. You know, I could, I could write how I want it to turn out, but that's me, that's not them. They have incredibly skilled and gifted actors, set designers, costume makers, music writers. You know, it's just astonishing what they've been able to put together. And it's more than just, yeah, you throw however many billions of dollars it was at something, it's going to be good. No. At the heart, they are lovers of the lore, and they have said this, and I believe them. And I think that that is always their aspiration. We don't always meet our aspirations. But I think they're making a a good faith effort. And the best sign is, I'm really fascinated to see where they're going to go next. I want to see Pelagir. I want to see the relationship with Bronwyn and Arendir. I want to see if they eventually become the ancestors of Prince Imrahil of Dolamroth. 
I want to see Galadriel become the Galadriel that I know and love. And I saw signs of that finally at the very end. I want to see them bring in Celeborn and, and hopefully Calibrian soon, please. No child marriages here, please. Um, <laughs> this isn't, it's okay. We're not on Hot, hot D, so there will be no child marriages, <laughs> uh, as far as I know. Seriously. And in fact, part of me was wondering, well, what are they going to find to talk about for the next five seasons? Or four seasons, excuse me. Because they crammed so much into this. And maybe that... Maybe that might be something that I would have altered. It, parts of it were so breathless, and other parts just—I've I've heard several people say that you know some of it was slow, and then some of it was so rushed that we could barely catch our breaths. So maybe kind of balance that out a little better. Um, but I'm—I'm I'm so ignorant of, of you know these kinds of processes that I—I I don't know what that would look like or how they would do it. I just. I hear a story, I see a story, I respond to a story, and, um, you know, they're taking us on a great journey. Is it Tolkien? Some things are Tolkien. Some things are Tolkien-ish. Some are misinterpretations of Tolkien, with a few things really going off the rails. I guess I said that in the beginning, so if you want to cut that part, feel free to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, they're definitely writing about Tolkien. Are they writing Tolkien itself? In many cases, yes, they are. And I want to give them props for that. I want to encourage that. And please let the mithril in a tree be a myth. <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept Gilgalad, however you conceive of him, if we can just not have a Silmaril in the tree. Thank you very much. And I really... I'm sorry that Celebrimbor doesn't get to have his friendship with Narvi. At least it doesn't look like he's going to. I, that's probably the plotline I'm most concerned with by now, at this point, is how are they ever going to pull that back? Because that friendship between Elrond and Dorin was just spectacular. And it really was. The ways really that was. Disa and Dorin appear to be tending make me very uncomfortable. I mean, people have talked about Lady Macbeth and, you know, I really don't imagine that they would, you know, have him murder his own father. I can't conceive of that. He didn't get murdered. He just fell into a mine, you know? I, I, <laughs> well, or, or he could encounter a Balrog, you know? We've, we've got the Balrog now. No, I, I really, one of the things, or both, one of the things I really want to see is Elrond and his forces surrounded by Sauron, knowing they're fighting a losing battle, and suddenly... Doors of Khazad-dûm fly open, and out comes Dorin and his dwarves, and he rescues his friend who was drowning. I want to see that at some point. I hope it will happen. We'll, we'll... Mostly, I just don't want to wait two years, you know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do want them to take as long as they need. After David gives us his final take, Marilyn, if you have five minutes, I'd love to hear your best spoiler take. And that way, you, you, you will we'll take the chains and trammels of the flesh of spoilers <laughs> off of you, and you can finally let loose and, and tell us what you want to happen next season. Okay. I don't know how much more I have to add. I've said a lot over the, the series of, uh, over the podcast, as we've been following the series, 
from a production standpoint, and I've I've been a, a broken record on this. This is just one of the best shows I've I've ever seen. It's beautiful. It feels fantasy. It's gorgeous. Uh, I am so happy with the with the team that they brought together to to execute on on this vision. Um, boy, sometimes the the writers knocked it out of the park, and it was just like, wow, this is really great, interesting, fascinating dialogue. I just really feel these characters. And then there are other times where like, woof, boy, this was a, a big miss for With me. our hearts um, even bigger than our feet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for me, it's touch the darkness in order to find the light. Mm. Yeah, that was a little creepy. I that think that little, is ugh. a very disturbing philosophy, to be perfectly honest. I don't think yeah. that that's Tolkien. I, all right, I went on a rant on this on another podcast, so I'm not going to do it on this one. But, yeah. but I said it's the wheel of time. <laughs> that is the wheel of time right there. And it's not interesting. No, uh, yeah. no, no, no. Tolkien is find the light and the darkness will not find and the shadow will not find you. Right. Right. Didn't didn't Bronwyn say right. that? That's to, Bronwyn to, to Theo. Theo. Yeah. Yeah. After she quoted Sam about there is light forever. So um, I think from uh, the showrunners have a really and we've talked about this uh, over and over and I'll, you know, just put a fine point on it is they they have a fine, a, a very narrow path to walk. They need to satisfy the Tolkienists. They need to um, satisfy the average casual fan, you know, the Jacksonian fans, if you will. And then they need to bring in a new audience. Amazon has put a lot of pressure on this production. In as now, I'm not saying like you know, perform, you know, the, the 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 executives are up on high, you know, pointing down at the showrunners, saying like you know, perform or else. But the fact that Amazon put on five global red carpet events in yeah. Mexico City, Mumbai, Los Angeles, London, Los Angeles. That is, you, they are shouting out to the world that they feel that this is the best thing that Amazon Prime Studios has put out to date. This is a premier product for them. This is the point where I have to bring in my latest Amazon marketing nonsense. Okay. <laughs> I've shared a few. I've shared my remote talking to me, telling me that, uh, that Lord of the Rings is on Prime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this yes. latest one is that I was on Twitter and I saw one of Aaron's tweets talking about the Rings of Power and I clicked heart and it became Sauron's head. Whoa. That's the into Twitter. Twitter is playing along. I, I'm telling you, man. I, I I feel like we're gonna have one every week next season too. So so if I if I look at the showrunners at, at Patrick and JD, they're young, they're inexperienced. They they're, they're experienced but not experienced, right? They've they've been toiling away in the in the bowels of the the scriptwriting bowels of of um, of Hollywood, um, and here they are now on one of the biggest stages that they could ever be put on. For the type of position that they're in, a showrunner, right? It's an obscure thing. It's a it's a it's a title that we haven't even given to uh, television or to, to media production, except in the last decade, maybe. Um, yeah. So they are they are um, under an incredible amount of pressure uh, all around and. What I can say is, is they didn't drop the ball. They they stumbled. They lost. You know, I don't want to go into a football metaphor necessarily, but you know, they maybe they lost a little yardage with the game. But they they brought us around to a season where I think most of the fandom is like, great, 
what's up for season two. And that is where they want to be. That, that is where Amazon Studios wants us to be, is give us season two. The sooner you can bring it to us, the better. And that is a excellent place all around for every different stakeholder in the production of this process where they want the audience to be. And so um, I feel good. And I've had a great time podcasting with John about this. We've had a, a lot of fun. We've got to meet you, Marilyn, and have some great conversations with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to all this happening again to some degree in during season two. And I just hope it doesn't overlap with some other premiere show on some other network. <laughs> I hope we can uh, have a little bit of breathing room uh, uh, to, to do our, uh, our podcast thing. And, so, and let us all um, wish health and strength and safety to the showrunners, because I want them yeah. to survive <laughs> through to the end. Fair however enough. long this is going to take, I don't want anything to happen to them. And, and, and can I throw in one more thing? I, my, my wish is that they would stop throwing in all the references to Peter Jackson and start mm. showing us their vision of Middle Earth. That's a really good point. Because what I've seen of it is fabulous. The visual language of the Jackson films to grab the Jackson fans right. to bring them in, right. to win them over. And if they did that intentionally, in season two, we get our own, you know, their point of view... Then I would say again another well done uh, for for those guys. Yeah, Marilyn, what what are your dreams for season two? If you can go full book spoilers, I would love to see Galadriel take up her ring, recognize that the healing has to begin with her, be reunited with Celeborn, and by some fantastic whatever, her daughter, although I can't imagine her leaving a daughter and going off and doing all this. So that that's really hard to, to, to kind of square that circle, or circle that square. Um, I would love to have her go off into the woods, and in my wildest dreams, um, she might have some kind of encounter with Nanna, who is the Vala of, of Grieving. Because holy cow, she needs that. And to see her start to develop a deep, the deeper understanding of healing, both from the inside and from the outside. I mean, you can see her feeding bits of wisdom to, to Theo, and you know that she's talking to herself as much as him. And that was, all of that was just, they were beautiful moments. I think she's had, you know, the fright of her life, first from Adar, and then from Sauron. I'm really worried for her because she hasn't chosen to tell anybody else about Sauron. I know Ellen's going to figure it out. I think he already has figured it out. And so, I think he may be instrumental in healing. Ellen is my favorite character. He's the one who is closest to the lore. He is kind. He's a good friend. He's thoughtful. He's honorable. I really hope they don't throw him a some kind of a stumble arc because what's wrong with having somebody who who represents all of those things and and is there as a foil for high kings who don't speak truth to everybody or who operate with deception for the greater good and yet still um i'll be interested to see what they do with kirdan 
Um, he, he's another kind of a blank slate, really. And also Celeborn, a blank slate. Um, I'm really interested, we never even talked about this, um, when Miriel makes her vow, she makes it in the name of her father, Adunayak name. Yes. Which implies a rejection of the faithful. I want to know what's going on with that, because in the shiphold, it seemed to me that both she and Elendild were, in essence, reaffirming their commitment to the faithful. So, how is that going to play out? I want to see how it's going to play out with Farazan. I really hope that they've dropped the whole forced marriage with your cousin incest ickiness, and maybe they'll use her blind. Maybe he'll use her blindness as an excuse. You know, there, there's some possibilities there. I'd love to see more of the Valar that are still present in the Numenorean culture. One of my favorite moments in the third episode was when Elendil first speaks Quenya to Galadriel. They are standing by a shrine to Nienna. One of the one of the sh the producers actually said this. And if you look at the shrine on the bottom right, there's the Babylonian goddess uh, Ishtar. Inanna, who did a descent and return. So again, this theme of loss, of dying and returning. Um, gosh, I'd love to see them develop that. I'll be gobsmacked if they do, because it, that's a really tough kind of a topic to address in this kind of a, of a setting. And, and I think a lot of, of viewers would, would just not really relate to that very much. But, you know, you ask me personal wishes, so, so that's... That's what I'm coming up with now. Yeah, yeah. What about you? My biggest thing is they really have to nail Numenor because they didn't this season. And uh, this is something that I'm going to throw out on the, on the longer form podcast, which is I don't think they needed to do Numenor at all this season. I think that it only detracted from the other plot lines. Um, I remember you said that. And it's difficult to imagine how Galadriel would have found an army, though. Did she need an army? You know, um, because that was a fabricated plot line too. You could have just not to fight had... off the orcs. Well, how I'm, how else would I'm they saying, have got rid of the orcs? Well, I'm saying you didn't need to have these people who needed rescuing. You could have put them somewhere else, or you hmm. could have you could have just had a plot line where they escaped, where they didn't need to to fight for their homeland as much. There were a lot of choices hmm. where you didn't need the Numenorians, um, or you could hmm. have had Galadriel maybe. Not co totally losing the uh, the faith of Gilgalad, and maybe she is given a, a series of warriors to go help uh, the people of the Southlands calling for mm. help. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's a million ways they could have gone there, and I don't want to speculate too long on that. But um, I I was just very disappointed with Numenor this season, other than the design. I mean, the the design was incredible, um, but the characters were not very well fleshed out. Um, the uh, the plot line just didn't seem to go anywhere. Now, they kind of established Farisone. We know he's going to become our Farisone. If they don't do that, they ruin the whole Numenor story. So, I just need them to nail the Numenor story next season. I thought they did a good job developing Muriel, particularly the, the non-canonical complication of her blindness. But I thought of another thing. I'd really love to see Isildur, of course, rescued by Beric, but then to make his way down to Pilargir and start to learn more about these Southerns and to start to contribute to the developing of what will eventually be the Gondorians, the, the Numenorians in exile. Is Pilargir anachronistic? Because to me, it seemed like it was. 
Um, no, it's a, well, no, there were settlements on the coast before Numenorf fell. Mm -hmm. And Pilargir, I believe, was the furthest north, except for the ones that, that were set up thousands of years ago um, by Aldarion. Okay. And, and they were all destroyed eventually because he had to go back and be, you know, king. And they were not maintained, and so they were destroyed. But that is where a lot of the hatred of the Numenorians by the indigenous people of Middle-earth was developed. Mm. Because they, they were resource colonists. They, they clear-cut the forests. They, they were, you know, it was basically all resources. I'm sure they weren't, you know, bringing people back for sacrifice because we're not there yet. But there was a certain tension that got set up at that point which later comes back to bite them in the butt continuously. I mean, that's where we get the Dunlendings eventually. The, the fall of Numenor has to be season, at the end of Season 2 or end of Season 3. If they do it any later really? than that, you're going to have... Well, because then you're not going to have enough time to develop Gondor and Arnor. I'm trying to think how many years they were actually in existence before the War of the Last Alliance. I didn't think it was all that long. It's not even a, a matter of years because, you know, we're compressing this a ton. But it's a, it's a matter point. of, can you sell me the idea that Gondor and Arnor are established enough to put up a real force against Sauron when Elendil has just landed with his sons and they're exiled? And the seven boats full of people. How big or small the boats. But the way they survived is because there were already Numenorian settlements. Not all good, though. Not all good Numenorians. No, the ones further south were definitely problematic. But the ones in Pelargir were there, and they were established. Um, by that time, you also have in that region um, the remnants of the elves that fled there. You know, Remember, there's another haven in that region. Mm -hmm. So you got that group of peoples. You have the men who eventually become, the, you know, the, the dead who haunt the, the, um, that past there. So, there's plenty of population around in that sense. The question is, how do they view the Numenorians? Now, right. if they remember this one story about how the Numenorian fleet came to their aid when, you know, Mordor was created, maybe that puts them in a good frame of mind. They haven't experienced the, the, the resource colonization aspect. Right. They hinted at that when Fadrazan was saying, yes, I will, I will support the elf because eventually they'll come to us and look at all the timber and all the resources and all the rest of it. So, I'm glad they planted that seed. It'll be interesting to see if they develop it, and if so, how much they develop it. I, I think that that's really where I need them to expand the development a lot. I think that if they if they just show up and and like you said there's people around but does elendil have first of all the political capital to cement his rule and sort of the hearts and minds of the of the men of middle earth to go hand to hand with sauron if he gets there season 4 and then season 5 we're fighting the war of the last alliance yeah i mean it is it is a good point it seems to me that you could develop that same thing over the course of two or three seasons. Yeah. And to some degree, slow down the time compression of how Numenor fell. Yeah. That's been one of the big complaints, right? They, nobody understands that one of the drivers for the Numenorians is the fear of death. And they know they hate elves, but nobody really knows why. Mm -hmm. Galadria alludes to the fact that at one point they were, they believed in the Valar and respected them and they 
had their practice on mental tournament and all that. That's almost non-existent, except in the visuals. And that's why I love him so much. You know, we right. see Uyen, we see Ose, we see Ulmo, we see Nienna. Um, I'd, I'd love to do a really close frame-by-frame frame of everything we see in Numenor and go Valar spotting <laughs> and see how, how many might have still existed um, that we don't really spot or see, but that were put there exactly for people like us right? who know what all this stuff was. Now, maybe they will refer to it at some point, but we don't know yet. All right. Well, that's basically my hopes and dreams. David, do you want to close us out? I, it's tough for me to do spoilers because I'm not as versed in the lore on this. Well, you are the other, age. you are the host of the Second Age podcast. <laughs> I should have I learned mean, something you, by now. It's okay. <laughs> um, I am really interested in the character arc for Galadriel. Um, and I am, you know, I'll tell you what, here we go. When are we going to get the, the friend door? I want to see the friend door made. Seriously. Like that, that is. Yes. Yes. The, yes. The the door, you know, that, that uh Gandalf and, and company go through at the uh then, you know, when they go into Moria. Um so I'm really interested to see how that comes about. I'm also very interested into seeing the political machinations and how do the last how does the last alliance of men and elves come to be to actually see that executed um, in the in the political negotiations that have to happen to bring two armies to bear at the same time in the same place to fight the same enemy. That is no easy feat. And uh, so I'm really excited to see uh, those kinds of things. And hopefully by then, the showrunners have um, really, you know, had the opportunity to uh, develop their storytelling craft better and, you know, bring, you know, maybe they can bring in some more directors and stuff like that who are experienced with those big action set pieces. But I'm definitely looking forward to some cool battle scenes on uh, large scale. So I think that's it for me. Actually, David, you've given me hope that the whole Silmarillion thing will turn out to be exposed as a lie, because otherwise there will be no elves in the Second Alliance. <laughs> <laughs> they will all have fled back to Numenor to save, depending on how you read it, their bodies or their souls, right. or both. And, and I, I'll, I'll make an offer to you. I'll make an offer to you. Possibly we will see the door created, and I want to see this too, after Durin rescues Elrond. There you go. In that battle I just described. That'd be cool. Uh, okay, well, that's our deep lore cuts. Uh, again, Marilyn, thank you so much, uh, and John, uh, for your wisdom and your insights. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our Patreon or our public feed. See you soon. The Rings of Power Lorecast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondageofbaldmove.com or write into Jim and Aaron at dug2deep at baldmove.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds. And for more Rings of Power content, subscribe to dug 2 deep on your favorite podcasting platform. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>